Hello and welcome to The World in 30 Minutes, the podcast on the events, policies and ideas that will shape the world from the European Council on Foreign Relations. My name is Mark Leonard and this week we are talking about the counter-revolution. I was in Vienna for a number of meetings but I also managed to catch up with Michael Ignatieff who is currently the rector of the Central European University but before that was the leader of the Liberal Party in Canada, but to most people he has forged a reputation as being one of the most thoughtful and influential historians and theoreticians of the ideas of liberalism. He wrote a biography of Isaiah Berlin. In the 90s he wrote and made a series of television documentaries on blood and belonging and the new nationalism in the Balkans. And At Harvard, as director of the Carr Center for Human Rights, he wrote a series of very, very thought-provoking books about the revolution in sovereignty and international human rights, which have been uh, very influential on the development of that field of thinking over the years. When I caught up with him in Vienna, he was in a, a very thoughtful mood, and we looked back Uh, What's happened to that revolution in human rights with the election of Donald Trump, with the rise of the liberal powers in other parts of the world, and with the big changes in domestic politics in Europe? I think it's a fascinating uh, discussion that we had. Um, The sound quality is not great because it was a a spur-of-the-moment decision to do the introduction, just because uh, I found Michael's thinking so interesting. And I hope you enjoy it as well. So, Michael, you have described yourself as the product of a liberal internationalist revolution which has changed the world over the last few decades. Can you tell me where you think we are in 2017? Well, Mark, I think we're living through a counter-revolution and a, a very deliberate attempt to turn back human rights and not just human rights and not just multilateralism and not just um, the international liberal order, but the domestic liberal revolution that was part of it. I mean, I, we, we need to connect, you know, the international liberal order and human rights and multilateralism with what was happening domestically. I mean, I, I'm the child of, you know, the Montgomery bus boycott and the civil rights revolution in the United States, the anti-Vietnam protests, feminism, gay rights, all that stuff simply transformed the world, transformed our individual and personal lives in ways that I think can be called revolutionary. Well, in 2016, 2017, we're looking at a concerted attempt to um, push that back. And the forces pushing it back are the forces of nationalism, the forces of populism, a return to sovereignty, a rejection of international human rights, All of that's underway. And the big historical question is, after the counter-revolution, what will will survive? Will gay rights still be there? Will feminist equality still be there? Will racial equality still be there? My view is, it will all still be there. But we've got a 10-year cycle, I think, when we're going to have to fight like hell to, to conserve what was wonderful about the liberal revolution. So... If you think about what brought this liberal revolution into being, I mean, history tends to be written by the victors. So certainly in the years after the Cold War, there was a sense amongst many in the West that people have a kind of natural inbuilt desire for freedom and that this package of rights, which had 
may be developed for, for contingent reasons in exactly that form in Western countries necessarily had to hang together. Um, now, what we're seeing is, is certainly at best there's a sort of picking and choosing of some of these liberties and, and rights, and it's the liberal ones which seem to be less popular. So, majoritarian democracy is has not lost its democracy has not lost its popularity, but but liberalism has, um, and capitalism is still popular, but the particular form of capitalism which which seems to be uh, on the rise after the Cold War uh, has hit a, a lot of opposition in different places. Um, can you sort of maybe unpick that? I mean, how much of the that passage was a kind of con totally contingent feature of, of imperialism, of the way that the Cold War ended? How much of it was a was a kind of necessary? Uh, march of progress, because I think that might also help us work out which bits might survive and which bits yeah. might not. Yeah, I think that's a good way to put it. I, I think what's irreversible is that we're in a post-imperial world. Uh, I know everybody talks about neo-imperialism and neo-colonialism and all that stuff, but, you know, we, we forget in 1945, you know, one half of the world was ruling the other half. These land empires have come crashing down. Portug the Portuguese empire was the last European one, and the Soviet empire in 1989 was the other one. We're not going back to an imperial world. And with that, we're not going back to a world in which a bunch of people with a certain, you know, racial... We're not going back to a world where some races believe they're born to rule other races. That's one thing. I think racial equality is going to be stubbornly impervious to the counter-revolution. I also think that in societies where women are now the majority, they're simply not going to go back into the kitchen and back into the home. Uh, they are going to continue to be in the public sphere, and they have the electoral and political power now to make any attempt to turn that back impossible. I think that's the same thing also with uh, the gay revolution. It came quickly, it came fast, but it came after struggle, and it sunk deep roots of support, uh, you know, in, in, certainly in all, in all Western democracies. But there are lots of other things that I think may be reversible. I mean, I think international human rights, to the degree that international human rights mandates the idea that, you know, one sovereign state has business interfering with commenting on criticizing other sovereign states, that's in big trouble. Uh, and, and that may be much more reversible than we think. Uh, sovereignty has made a comeback in a way that I don't think we anticipated after 89, but I think it's back, and it's back for a really important reason that we didn't see coming, which is we thought democracy and human rights advanced hand in hand, you know, glove in glove, and in fact, human rights and democracy were on a, always on a collision course, because to the degree that democracy is the sovereignty of citizens in a determinate state, they, those citizens, when they make a majority decision, can feel, why should some outside group, the Open Society Foundation, Human Rights Watch, Amnesty, tell us how to make our own decisions about our own societies? That conflict between democracy and human rights is much sharper than we thought, and that's a place where we don't know what the outcome will be, but it's quite possible that democratic majoritarianism will push back on international human rights in a very new way and make 
the human rights revolution much more reversible than we thought. But doesn't that dynamic also apply in the domestic sphere? I mean, a lot of people see the rise of uh, Donald Trump, the Brexit vote, as an attempt to, by threatened majorities to behave like minorities. They see every other group in society, women, gay people, every single ethnic group in a very Canadian way, I suppose, <laughs> organizing themselves, demanding uh, group rights as well as individual rights. And, and the, the, the kind of white uh, working class people whose status is threatened, whose communities are being changed, are now organizing themselves and behaving like a minority like the other groups and demanding rights for themselves in a similar way. Yeah, there's no, there's no stopping democratic majoritarianism and it may mount a counter uh, revolt against women's rights, against gay rights, against minority rights. Uh, and that's where the battle is being fought now. But I, I still don't believe that uh, that populist counter-revolution is going to be able to turn back the gains because their gains, you know, we talk about, you know, the, the, the angry white majority, but the gains for women were gains for white women too. Uh, the gains for gays were gays for, were, were, were gains for Republican uh, gays. So I think these, these liberal gains have been gains for much wider constituencies than just liberals. That would be the, you know, the, the first thing I'd say. Where I think the um, counter-revolution may secure big victories is in our attitude towards strangers at our borders, towards refugees and migrants. I just think that the support for open borders or even for, you know, the kind of massive migration that we have taken for granted since the 60s may actually be over. Just as I think that the tacit support for uh, free trade may be in recession, I think I can see much more protectionist, much more sovereigntist, much more closed borders in the future. But within those societies, I, I still, maybe I'm whistling in the dark here, but I can't see that the feminist gay and racial equality revolutions will be turned back inside those societies. In the 90s, you wrote with absolutely mesmerizing clarity about the, the ethnic and identity politics that was erupting across the Balkans, and you went and chronicled these things in amazing television programs, in books. How much of a read across do you think there is from the concepts that you were looking at, that you're analyzing then, with what's happening in, in many Western countries today? I think there's no question that there has been a um, a return of a certain kind of nationalist identity politics. Um, Hungary for Hungarians, you know, the Czech Republic for the Czechs, um, Slovakia for the Slovaks. Um, it's a little more difficult to say Canada for the Canadians <laughs> since, you know, we're so uh, multicultural. And that may be the limit. To the degree that we have multicultural, multi-ethnic uh, populations now, the only way we can bind those folks together in a common project is a kind of civic nationalism in which we say what we care about here is not some ethnic, linguistic, historical set of common roots, but in fact common attachment to values, and we hope those will be liberal values, but they may also be much more conservative values. There's no reason to suppose, for example, that in, a, in multicultural communities that 
that have come to a place like Canada or, or the United States or Britain that, uh, you know, recent uh, Pakistani or Bangladeshi or Muslim immigrants are going to align with liberal values. They may align with much more conservative values based on family, based on faith, based on these things. So that those battles are going to go, go on. Why are they occurring at all? Because people need identities. They need belonging. They need attachments. They need a sense that their life goes on beyond their life and began before their own life began with a sense of connection to, you know, uh, uh, national destinies. And I think liberals, you know, and I'm a charter liberal, have never been very understanding of that. We've always thought of that, those emotions as being atavistic, primitive, reactionary. And not, not so. I think we need a, a liberal patriotism. I, I dare say a liberal nationalism. One that is as inclusive as we possibly can make it, but also says if you come to our country, there are certain ways in which we do things. There are certain, way, there are certain, certain values that are con, you know, the very definition of what it is to be a patriotic Canadian or a patriotic American. And, or pretty, do and I, don't feel, I don't feel alarmed by those emotions. I just think that's... That's the world we're in. No, I, I agree. I mean, I, I spent a lot of the 90s trying to, to help craft a, a, a cosmopolitan, civic version of Britishness, which no. um, took off with the Blair government. No. But in a way, I think that Brexit is a, is a kind of revenge <laughs> for that project, no. because what happened was it created a sense of inclusion amongst all the people who'd felt excluded from the, the much more ethnic notion of... Well, I suppose it was Englishness under Thatcher. They suddenly felt that they were part of the country. And that then led to a backlash amongst the people who had owned the old identity but felt excluded from the, the identity of the London Olympics and the, the kind of civic nationalism that you're talking about. Yeah, well, but I think the thing we need, we all need to keep our hair on in here and not set our hair on fire. Um, we are in the middle of a counter-revolution. Um, but the battles over these issues of identity is simply unending. It's not the case that with Brexit a definitive victory has won, has been won for a certain vision of Brit Britishness. The battle is not over. My view is it has just begun. Can I ask you one last question about the, the international order? Because you were also one of the people who uh, has done the most to think through what an international human rights order looks like, what it means the, the, the balance of responsibility between sovereignty and, and intervention. Um, it's quite clear that a lot of the concepts that came to their fruition out after Kosovo in the early noughties um, are now on, on the back foot. But um, at the same time, it is interesting to watch Russia uh, launching wars of intervention in different countries, China having a much less sovereignist agenda than it did a decade or so ago. Mm. Um, and I'm sort of wondering if maybe the liberal interventionism era might be drawing to a close, the postmodern idea that you uh, intervene in defense of human rights, but there is a kind of pre-modern version of interventionism which we saw uh, from Russia of, of defending ethnic Russians um, and uh, a kind of uh, and ethnic Chinese, it's not impossible to imagine Chinese going and defending Chinese citizens in other places. And a modern variant as well, where, where you basically see 
um, Assad being defended from his citizens. So it is a defense of the state against its citizens. Rather. And so maybe the pre-modern and the, the modern variants of intervention might replace the, the post-modern ones. I mean, how do you see that whole complex of issues emerging? Well, you've, you've, you've described the terrain you know, very well. I think that liberal internationalism, that is, we're going to go into you know, Libya, we're going to go into Iraq, we're going to go into Kosovo, we're going to go into Rwanda, because a state is making more on its own citizens in some way. I think it's very difficult now to sustain the political, the domestic constituency in our own countries to do that. The weakness of liberal internationalism always was the weakness of its domestic constituency in its own in our own societies, uh, because any voter looked at liberal internationalism and thought, "You're asking me to send my son and daughter to die for your ethical convictions about human universality? Give me a break here. That just sounds like war to me. It doesn't sound like humanitarian rescue. It sounds like war, and it sounds like risk." And I think that reproach against liberal internationalism, which was that we chose we chose justice, we cared about justice more than we cared about peace, was a very justified reproach addressed to liberal internationalists like myself by by our own domestic or fellow citizens. So we all have to think about that. But the reality, looking forward, just on that subject, is that in the future there will be states making more on their own citizens, chopping them into little pieces, massacring them in horrendous ways, barrel bombing them as Assad has been doing in Syria. And once again, the, the question that liberal internationalists ask, which is, what the hell do you do about this? Your fellow human beings are being killed by their own government. Do you propose to stand and watch that? That question will come back again and again and again. And the answer, the right answer is, you have to create an international coalition with international authorization to do this or you don't do it at all. And you have to create domestic support to do it or you can't do it at all. These are matters of democratic consent. And liberal internationalists, I think, fluffed over the issue of, of democratic consent. On the other side, as you say, it's not as if intervention is going to stop because... The Russians are going to intervene on behalf of their ethnic nationals. The Chinese are going to do so. So we're looking at a century of intervention, a century of intervention justified by state necessity and state uh, and, you know, these these forms of ethnic partiality. And the challenge for the 21st century order is to define some rules to prevent this becoming completely chaotic and destructive of the state order. A liberal internationalist like me has never been casual about the importance of state sovereignty. We've, we've always been accused of being not caring about state sovereignty. I want sovereign states. I want respect for state sovereignty. I want to make it conditional on some minimal human rights observance but I really don't want a world in which great powers think they can walk into the Baltic states on behalf of their ethnic brothers. I don't want a, a world in which they can walk into Ukraine. I don't want... Uh, Do you think that Western countries inadvertently opened that door? I think we did, because we had a lot of what's sauce for the goose is sauce for the gander, excuse the sexist metaphor, but I mean, they said, you did it in Libya, we're going to do it in Ukraine. I just think we all, to the degree that we can agree with anything about the Russians and the Chinese, it's going to be 
there's certain rules of the international sovereign order which it is deeply in all our interests to obey. Um, if that's a traditional answer, that is what I think we're going to have to come around to because we don't agree about anything else, but we might agree on respect for sovereign independence and inviolability. Okay, thank you very much. It's been Pleasure. fascinating to talk. Good, great. So that brings my discussion with Michael Ignatieff to an end. If you have enjoyed this podcast, please do give us a review or ranking on iTunes. It will help other people find the podcast and uh, enjoy it as well, hopefully. And feel free to share your views about it with us. Uh, you can write to me at mark.leonard at ecfr.eu and with all your friends on Facebook, on ECFR's Facebook page, or on Twitter or any other social media or platforms that you're using to listen to this podcast on. You can find links to some of Michael Ignatieff's writing and thinking on the topic on our website, which is www.ecfr.eu slash podcasts. But for now, from Michael Ignatieff and myself, Mark Leonard, it's goodbye. The researcher of ECFR's podcast is Ulrike Franke, and our editor is Bolin Goemin. 